Uh, let me begin with a question, and it's a rhetorical question, so if you're tempted to answer, you don't have to answer. Uh, why are our feelings uh, so fragile? Uh, I don't know about you, but it doesn't take very much for me and my feelings to fluctuate from very high to very low. Uh, not, it doesn't take very long. I feel like I'm having an excellent week, then all it takes is just one bad day for me to feel like the week has been completely wasted. I wonder whether you ever feel like that. Things seem to go well, then all it takes is just one bad, one night of bad sleep. Then I feel weak, can't get much work done, start to feel anxious about the lost times and opportunities. Uh, we feel fragile, and we often feel like this because we are fragile, aren't we? We are fragile from physical illness, pressures from work, stresses of life. And on top of that, we are also morally fragile. Do you find that? I have a wonderful Bible study on Wednesday night, feeling very encouraged, spurred on to live for Jesus, I come back home, and I say something that I shouldn't say to my wife. Watch something that I shouldn't watch. Covet something that I shouldn't covet. Guilt and shame cloud over my heart. Now, what do you do in times of frailty like that? Where do you turn to? Our psalmist today turns to the Lord... Remember his works and put his hope in the Lord's character. As Huey taught us in the past week, Psalm 103 falls in uh, Book 4 of the Psalm. And the Book 4 of the Psalm, the context is that it's mostly written uh, during or in the aftermath of that exile event where Israel was driven away from the land, uh, put under slavery of the foreign ruler. It was a time when the people of Israel was very fragile. They were driven away from their homeland. They were put under the yoke of foreign slavery. Uh, the, The things that gave them confidence, like they no longer had their king. God stopped speaking to them, their prophets. No more miracles that they could boast of. Temple where they used to offer sacrifice and be reminded of God's presence with them decimated. And most devastatingly, uh, they knew that God was angry with their sins. So many of the Psalms in, in Book 3 and Book 4, Book 4 is from Psalm 90 to Psalm 106, uh, shows fragile Israel in pain and anguish. Then Psalm 103 is a bit of a turning point of the book. Uh, from here on, uh, we hear less cry of agony but a growing chorus of praises. And what do you do when all hopes and aspirations fail? What do you do when you're weak, vulnerable, and fragile? The psalmist declares to himself and everyone listening, remember God and rest your confidence in his track record of steadfast love. He can and he will help you, forgive you, and restore you in his love. That's his message in Psalm 103 today. 
as David leads his people in praises to God, I pray that we will also see his goodness, God's goodness, and join in praise with David. However fragile we are in ourselves, however fragile your situations are and circumstances are today. Let's have a look from uh, Psalm 103 again. Of David, that's part of the Bible, by the way. Uh, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, forget not all his benefits. And David, uh, the psalmist, David, or someone in the line of David, perhaps a son of David, uh, opens the psalm, exalting himself to bless the Lord. Uh, To bless God uh, is to give him due honor, uh, is to give him joyful gratitude, uh, it's to praise him. I think that's how NIV translates that word bless. So th- there's a bit of an interchangeable word there, bless and praise, which means to declare about how good God is, to tell people how wonderful God is. Uh, David is very convinced, deeply convinced, that the Lord must be blessed with all that he is, with everything that he has. His will, his reasoning, his mind, his affections, Now, how does the psalmist utter such words of praise? Uh, Is it because he feels good about himself? Life is good for him. He's not a fragile human being. Everything is in perfect condition, so it's easy to praise. Is that kind of what is going on? Most likely not. We spoke about the context of uh, Book 4. The psalmist's mention of the oppressed in verse 6 alludes to the fact that this was by no means a rosy time for Israel, nor her king. He's not blessing the Lord because everything is good. He's not blessing the Lord, or he feels like this because God has given him lots of money and and, and benefits in that way. No, the psalmist is not speaking these words because it is easy for him and life is trouble-free. Rather, I think looking at the whole context of the psalm, Precisely because he is fragile, uh, precisely because he knows that his soul's only hope rests on the Lord, he exhorts himself to bless the Lord. It is as if David knew that it is when he is weak, then he is strong. So long as he is depending on God. Now, as David tunes his soul to the Lord... Uh, What does he remember? What what kind of God is David's God who ought to be blessed? Look at verse 3. He forgives all your iniquity. He heals all your diseases. Who redeems your life from the pit. Who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. Who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Uh, David lists five things that the Lord has done for him there. And although each one has its own distinct emphasis, they're not five random benefits. I think they together form a picture of salvation, if you look at it carefully. God forgives David's iniquity, and in this case, as an outward expression of that, inward spiritual reality, God also heals him from physical illness, right? All sickness is the sign and reminder that we're living in a sinful body. Uh, it's a sign, our suffering is a reminder that we are living in a fallen world, in a mortal uh, body. Then God raises David up from the pit. Uh, A pit is a reminder of death, 
in the Old Testament, it's an imagery of death. Then uh, God crowns him with love and mercy, satisfies him with good, then David's strength is renewed. It's almost like a new life, isn't that? Uh, I, I reckon these work together, almost like a picture of God raising David from the dead and giving him a new life. Having forgiven, healed, and rescued him from the gate of death, God crowns him with steadfast love and mercy, causes the psalmist to overflow with good so that his once-failing strength is renewed like an eagle. David's God is God of salvation. He is God whom he can turn to in his time of need. He is God who can and does rescue from our sins and frailty. He forgives the sins, heals people in their body of death. Uh, What a comfort it is that God is God of salvation. That's his character. That's what he does. Now, as David recounts how God saved him from his sins and frailty, uh, he looks back to the history. And he's reminded that actually, God dealing with me in this way, God saving me, is not a one-off thing. God has always been like this. God has this track record of saving his people and being gracious and merciful to his people. So he remembers a particular incident of Exodus in verses 6 to 9. Would you read it with me again? The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide nor will he keep his anger forever. It's like David is saying, uh, you know, if if there are other Old Testament covenant believers listening in, perhaps this psalm was praised and sung in the temple in the presence of many, saying, do you remember the Exodus, how it began? God's people were oppressed under the heavy yoke of Pharaoh. And what did God do? You remember that one of the most moving words in Exodus chapter 2. God heard the groanings of his people. God saw the affliction of his people. Then God remembered them. Uh, In Hebrew, uh, the translation put it so succinctly, but it's it's nevertheless uh, less touching. Uh, It says, God knew. God knew them. He knew them, remembered them, and rescued them out of Egypt with his power and grace. But David doesn't finish that. But that's not all. Then do you remember what God's people did (laughs) straight after God showed that kind of mercy and steadfast love to them? Do you remember that, God's people? Well, they made golden calf and worshipped it, worshipped an idol in place of God of their salvation. Uh, When Moses went up to Mount Sinai to hear from God uh, how God's people ought to live and uh, hear from God how God will lead them into promised land, in that short time Moses was away, God's people turned their back against God. That was one of the most horrible part of our history. And You know, we wouldn't have had any complaints if Israel was completely wiped out from the face of the earth under God's just wrath against us. But David is like, but yet, remember what happened in that time? God revealed himself as the merciful and gracious Lord. 
he forgave us yet again. It's almost like recounting that history, reminding people. When you suffer badly, we often despair, don't we? I hope you do and have a you know, soft conscience like that. When you stuff up, you know, oh, there's no turning back. That relationship you took for granted, you've ruined it, your many years of abuse, taking advantage of that person, and you know there is no turning back. That job you stuffed up and you let your colleagues down, your work boss is crossed with you, you know there is no turning back. In human relationships, that's often true, isn't it? I, I mean, we do give forgiveness, reconciliation here and there, but there is a level in which once you cross that, there's no turning back. But David says, not so with God. If any event was, you know, line of no turning back, that was it in Exodus. But not so with God. In him, there always is mercy. In him, there always is forgiveness. Yes, we are in exile, receiving just penalty for disobeying God. But God's people, remember, he will not always chide. He will not be angry with you forever. Remember the exodus. Those are scoundrels who dishonored God with golden calf after witnessing God's power and grace with their own eyes. God forgave even them. God's track record of steadfast love and mercy to such sinners invites every subsequent sinners, including you and I today, to draw near and find comfort and relief from God in our times of need. And that is what we see in the psalm. There is a movement within the psalm, isn't there? Did you notice that? The psalm begins with the psalmist exalting himself in verse 1. Did you see the singular? Uh, we often like to put ourselves in there very quickly. But remember, this is a psalm of David, uh, God's representative, son of David, king. Uh, it, it's just king himself exalting to praise, recounting God's history of salvation to his people. But, but from verse 10 to 14, the pronoun changes from singular to plural. It is no longer simply your iniquity, but our sins. It's not simply your, uh, 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 your uh, life from the pit, but our lives. It is as if David praises the Lord, recounting the steadfast love of God, then those who are listening to David join in his praise. Yes, David is right. The Lord is merciful and gracious. We ought to bless the Lord. Let us bless the Lord with David, our king. So they sing with David from verse 10. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Uh, just, can you just imagine how comforting words that would have been for the Israelites in exile just singing this praise together although with their physical eyes they couldn't see but they were reminded and assured that God knows them and that God has not completely abandoned them 
Uh, here is the beauty and glory of the God of the Bible. He is gracious and merciful to sinners. Uh, consider again how we often deal with those who sin against us. I don't know about you, but I often keep fresh in my mind the injustice done to me. Let's say, let's say an example. It's not my dad, but you know, how, how my dad failed me when I was young. Kind of hold it against him. How my friend badmouthed me behind my back. Uh, we hold on to uh, the faults and failings of people and seek opportunity to pay back. However subtly and secretly we do it. You know, we, we, we've kind of um, grown to understand that if we do it too explicitly, they'll understand. So we try to do it secretly and subtly. But David says, not so with God. He does not deal with his people according to their sins. He does not deal with them according to their, uh, as they deserve. Uh, he does not replay uh, my and your failed history of hatred, lust, pride, greed, and simply ignoring him. Uh, rather, he forgives and removes our guilt. Uh, so far, is it from the realm of possibility that God would be vengeful to his people and treat his people according to their sins? Uh, David compares such likelihood uh, to the distance between the earth and the heavens. Uh, how far is the heavens from the earth? The NASA website tells me that we dwell within the Milky Way galaxy, uh, which is 100,000 light years away from the earth. If you traveled in their spacecraft, it will take us 450 million years. If you can somehow travel at the speed of light, it'll still take you 26,000 years. David's point is this. The magnitude of such distance is just far, how far God has removed you and my sins from us. Not because we deserve it. Not because we are inherently good. But because he is. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Uh, but then a question rises: How is that possible? Is that because our sins are not very serious? Well, that can't be true because God is holy, as we see in verse 1. You, you praise his holy name. One of the reasons why you praise him and he deserves uh, all our honor and glory and praise is not uh, only that he does what is good for us, but he does it according to justice and righteousness. Evil and sin will not have any shade in him. Then how does God remove the sins and transgressions of his people without compromising his justice and righteousness? Uh, this psalm does not elaborate in full details, but the psalmist has been dropping hints throughout the book of Psalms if you have been reading with him. Uh, the two Psalms prior, in Psalm 101, feel free to flip there, we meet a blameless king. Uh, psalm 101 is also a psalm of David. Uh, so uh, the I there is most likely David or someone in the line of David, a son of David perhaps. Uh, he declares of himself in this way. I read from Psalm 101, verse 1. I will sing of steadfast love and justice to you, O Lord. I'll make music. I'll ponder the way that is blameless. Oh, when, when will you come to me? I'll walk with integrity of heart within my house. I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. 
I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. A perverse heart shall be far from me. I will know nothing of evil. Towards the end, in verse 8, the the king declares, Morning by morning, I will destroy all the wicked in the land, cutting off all the evildoers from the city of the Lord. The hint is, this, this king, the blameless king, who will know nothing of evil, will somehow deal with our sins. And God will forgive our sins through this king's work. Uh, the blameless Son of God in Psalm 101 uh, has been introduced all the way back at, at the very front door of the psalm in Psalm 2. Remember that same Son of God, whom God said he will set on Zion, his holy hill, to destroy all the wicked and defeat evil and bring in his kingdom of righteousness. Although it is not fully explained, you get the hint that the king's integrity of heart, which knows no evil, and cut off all the evildoers from the city of the Lord will play a role. That, that's how God will forgive our sins. Now for us, with the hindsight of the New Testament, we have seen this blameless king, the greater son of David, Jesus Christ. The eye of the psalm is Jesus himself. Before these were ever our words, this was his words. Jesus was sitting there in the synagogue of Nazareth in Capernaum, singing this song, tuning his heart to obedience to God for the forgiveness and salvation of the world. It is because God made him to be sin, who knew no sin, that we become the righteousness of God. Though we are undeserving because of Jesus Christ, uh, now we can shout it with confidence that God will never deal with us according to our sins. God will never, ever deal with us according to our sins. As far as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. Uh, How do you fear him and who are those who fear him? Uh, Remember Psalm 2 again? How do you fear God? Kiss the Son. Serve him with rejoicing and trembling. It's those who trust Jesus. It's those who have now known the name of God's, uh, 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 God's holy name to be Jesus Christ. Well, let's get back to Psalm 103. If the psalm finished at verse 12 in that way, that would have been wonderful enough, wouldn't it? But there's more. God does not only take away the sins of his people, but having removed their sins, he then clothes them with his compassion. And steadfast love. Uh, look at verse 13. Great verse uh, for the fathers to be reminded and lead. Uh, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. God knows that we are frail, mortal beings. He is not a God who cannot understand how uh, our weaknesses. You know, there are some people who are just so good, so proud, and so competent that they just can't understand people who are, who are weak. If anyone would be like that, that would be God, wouldn't it? God of infinite power. But with his infinite power, he uses it to know our frailty, 
He's not a God who holds our weaknesses against us, ready to pounce us when we make mistakes. Rather, he bears with our weaknesses. He shows patience and compassion. How about that? I often forget uh, who and what I really am, that I'm only dust. I'm a very proud person, and I tend to, I think, I think often, uh, Satan deceives me into thinking, uh, have a much higher view of myself. When I'm in the mood, I feel like I can do anything. But I know very well, I quickly buckle under pressure. Stresses of work, demands of responsibility, feel inadequate to carry out my role, whether that be as a pastor or husband or father, strained relationships hurt, makes you weary. Sickness and death of loved ones reminds me of my frailty and our frailty. I'm not the only one who feels that I'm fragile, am I? If any of you are under the illusion that you are more than who you are, you are but dust. That's your frame. I pray that God will reveal it to you, just how weak we are. And wonderful comfort for those who know their frailty is that God knows our frailty. He knows how fragile we are, physically, mentally, and related with that morally and spiritually. And because he knows so well that we are mere mortal human beings, he has compassion on us. Uh, In the hindsight of the New Testament, we see to what extent God knows our frailty and how much he had compassion on us. Uh, Would you turn with me to the book of Hebrews in the New Testament for a bit? I just want to look at two short passages with you. It's worth turning there. A little jam right at the back of the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17 to 18. Uh, These verses really reveal it to us. Just to what extent God knows our frailty and to what extent God went out of his way to sympathize with us and to have compassion on us. I'm reading from Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. Therefore he, that is Jesus Christ, had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of his people. For because he himself had suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Uh, Then uh, two chapters later, chapter 4, verses 15 to 16, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of our need. Uh, The way God knows our frailty is not from an ivory tower. It's not just by reading a psychological book and psychoanalyzing how weak we are. He came in flesh. He knows what it is like to live as a fragile human being. He knows what it is like to be tempted under the persecution, pressures, betrayal of friends, failed relationships. And he sympathizes with our weaknesses. And he paid for our sins and rose to give us new life. 
He is now sitting at God's right hand, ready to intercede for us with his grace and mercy in our struggle against sin and in our existence under the fear of death. This is our God. Well, verses 15 to 16 of Psalm 103, coming back there again, uh, repeats the same idea and reminds us that God's love is greater than our frailty. God's love is so strong that it even overcomes death and the power of sin. Read with me from verse 15. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. And when the wind passes over it, it is gone. Its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his commandment and remember to do his commandments. What good news to weak, frail, and dying human beings. What it's saying there is that suffering and death cannot separate us. Suffering and death cannot separate those who trust God and his king from the love of God. Because his love is everlasting. Well, verse 19 brings the psalm to a close. It is this God, God of mercy and grace, God of compassion and steadfast love, God who knows our frailty and removes our guilt. It's this God who rules over all things. There's no other God in this world. There is no other God in heaven and earth. This God. The God who has compassion on us. The God who removes us. He rules over all. What a fitting end uh, to the psalm, isn't it? What does that mean? Well, because he is your God, you are forgiven no matter how much you have failed. Because he is your God and he rules, you are loved beyond imagination. How much? More than the size of the galaxy. Try to comprehend size of the galaxy in your head and then try to think about how much God loves you. It's more than that. Because he is your God and he rules, your hope is secure. No matter how fragile you are. Because he is your God and he rules over all. From everlasting to everlasting, nothing can separate you, not even death, from his love and compassion. That, that's the ending of the psalmist. Then, it, it leads to the um, uh, logical uh, conclusion, isn't it? Because this is God. This is who he is. Bless the Lord. He invites not only the congregation, but now he says, Bless the Lord, the angels. Bless the Lord, heavenly beings, heavenly courts. Bless the Lord, all creation. And bless the Lord, all my soul again. He's joining in. He's worthy of praise. Such God is worthy of all praise. Brothers and sisters, will you join in blessing this Lord in Jesus' name? With his saints across the ages, along with all creation, for who he is and what he has done for us.